0: Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Ann Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can understand it all better. This week, Kim pitched Jupiter Ascending as a great example of a story that just doesn't work. This 2015 gas giant of a science fiction fantasy film was written and directed by Wachowskis, who, as you may recall from season four, also, brought us the nearly incomprehensible Cloud Atlas. Before we get into our discussion, just a reminder that you may hear some adult language as we try to work out what the bleep went wrong with this storytelling. Kim will start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story.
1: So, the global genre appears to be action, epic, savior plot, perhaps? The internal genre is worldview education, I think, but it's pretty weak. Here's the beginning hook. When the ruling class of the universe sends alien mercenaries to murder Jupiter Jones because of her special DNA, she must decide whether to stay on Earth or leave with the stranger who saved her. She agrees to leave, but they are attacked and forced to hide out on Earth. In the middle build... When Jupiter learns she is a pawn in a royal power struggle to harvest all humanity in the universe, she must decide whether or not to trust that marrying the prince will save humanity or, you know what, to be honest, we got stuck here because there really is no valid crisis for Jupiter in the middle build. Okay? Anyway, she agrees to marry him, but the wedding is crashed and revealed as a ploy to gain control of Earth and murder Jupiter. In the ending payoff... When Jupiter discovers her family has been kidnapped by the heir to the throne, he gives her the choice to abdicate her title or watch her family be killed. She refuses to abdicate, knowing she and her family will die, but Earth would be safe. Before anyone can be killed, her rescuer swoops in again, and then the royal asshole is killed in all the chaos, and then Jupiter returns to Earth, content, knowing that her family and the Earth are safe.
0: Thanks, Kim. I think the only thing that I would really want in this movie is those skating shoes. I mean, those are epically cool. The rest of this movie, just not so much. I was confused from the first minute. And Kim, I know you're looking at stories that don't work this season. So I am really curious what you have to say about this one, because you definitely picked a doozy.
1: Well, that's all part of the fun. So throughout our time on the Roundtable podcast and even before, you know, when we were studying off the air together, we've found that very often we learn the most when we hit on a story that doesn't work. Previously, it had been a happy accident, but this time I decided to tackle it on purpose because like it or not, a story that doesn't work is something all writers struggle with no matter what genre you write in. I've watched this film at least four times now, and each time, part of me hopes that this time things will be different. There's a lot to be excited about in the story, which is why it's so disappointing that it doesn't work. Each time, my audience expectations are left very unsatisfied. But at least now, I know why. To kick off my exploration, I completed the Editor Six Core Questions and Friedman's Framework. And interestingly, on the surface, Jupiter Ascending seems to check the boxes. Within the editor's six core questions, we find a viable action story that showcases life and death stakes with the threat of damnation, and we can find each of the necessary conventions and obligatory scenes, as far as I can tell. But there are two areas that stuck out to me with problems, the point of view and narrative device, more on this in a minute, and the objects of desire, that is, the wants and needs for our protagonist, Jupiter. In Friedman's framework, I was able to tick the boxes for worldview education, But it's as if it only exists at the beginning and the end of the story. In the beginning, we see a montage of Jupiter waking up early, cleaning toilets, and she repeats the line, I hate my life. In the end, she wakes up early and chipper, serving others and cleaning joyfully. Also, in the final Hero at the Mercy of the Villain scene, Belem reveals what happened to his mother, that she hated her life and begged him to kill her. But aside from these three brief moments, we don't really understand what drives Jupiter to want anything. We don't know her. This seems to be why, despite being able to fill out Friedman's framework, I couldn't fill out her wants and needs in the Editor Six Core Questions with any real conviction. After the Editor Six Core Questions and Friedman's Framework, I made a list of all the things that bugged or confused me about the story. And when taken together, they seem to boil down to one major issue, a lack of clarity. We see this play out in a multitude of areas. There's a lack of clarity with the introduction of the genre and audience expectations. The whole opening of the story is a mess, for a lot of reasons. First, let's look at genre's five-leaf clover, or genre's North Star, as I like to call it, and I actually draw it on my paper when I'm trying to figure something out. In The Time Leaf, we know this is long. It's a feature film. But it's so complicated, and it's with world-building, rules, and cast of characters, that maybe it should have been a TV series. The whole thing feels rushed, and it's what a colleague of mine would call 10 pounds of shit stuffed in a five-pound bag, which, fun fact, was an actual episode of Mythbusters in real life. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, there is a link to the show notes. You're welcome. So the other leaf that I really want to point out here is the reality leaf. Now, we know this is fantasy science fiction, but it feels all over the place. It's still important to have rules, and here it just doesn't feel consistent. We never really get a handle on things within the world. There's a variety of species that don't entirely make sense when they're only harvesting humans. Also, there's this thing about the bees that's cool, but it also seems to contradict some important subtextual themes. I'll rant more about that in a little bit. All in all, genre is a matter of consistency, setting up and paying off audience expectations. I'm going to refer to examples throughout here where I feel like this story breaks trust by being confusing rather than compelling. Next, we see a lack of clarity in the prologue. This is where we experience the inconsistent point of view issue. Throughout all of this prologue, we get first-person voiceover by Jupiter. Technically
2: speaking, I'm an alien. And from the perspective of immigration, an illegal one. I was born without a country, without a home, without a father. But I was born in the house of Lee with Jupiter rising at 23 degrees ascendant. According to my aunt, this is supposed to mean that I am destined for great things and that I will find the one true love of my life.
1: Problem with astrology? Total bullshit. This first-person voiceover is never brought back into the story. It's like a cheap trick that you can feel happening. The lines of voiceover here scream darlings to me. You know, the kind we're supposed to murder. That seems like the only reason they're allowed to exist, because the scenes themselves would be more powerful without any voiceover. But even then, I have some issues with the content of the prologue. Jupiter's father is murdered during a home invasion robbery by an entire crew without masks, Which is tragic, and it points at the life and death stakes up front, I guess. But it's entirely random. It's not set up well. It's not connected to the story in any meaningful way. Why have him die in this way? Shot by burglars trying to save a telescope?
0: I am so with you on that, Kim. I don't see the point at all, the father dying this way. I mean, as you said, it never comes back why he was killed in the first place. In my opinion, if you kill someone in a story, it has to be for a story reason that pays off somewhere down the line. And this one just doesn't.
1: Yeah. When I originally saw this film, my story instincts figured it was because her parents were royalty too, and they were being hunted down by the same people who would eventually hunt her down. Nope. It's not actually tied to anything and it's not meaningful to the story at all. No setup for some later powerful payoff, just confusing and distracting. So next, we see that Jupiter is born on her mother's voyage to America, which is a powerful moment. But again, what is the point? The audience gets very weak motivation for why her mother would suddenly board a boat to America. She's a professor at a university. She's not homeless. And it's supposedly the 80s or something right now, but this makes it feel like it's decades earlier. What does this mean for novelists? If it's going to be there, it needs to be essential. Don't do cheap shots and don't get married to things that don't serve your story. You know, we've seen how voiceover can be used throughout a story, such as Shawshank Redemption, and how many transitions can be eliminated completely but still present meaning, such as puzzle. This film feels like a failure at both.
3: Well, not to excuse this flaw, because I agree it's a flaw, but in my role as the only roundtabler who kind of actually enjoyed this film... (laughs) If I squint, I can see where the father's murder at the hands of some kind of mobsters, Russian mobsters, might be connected to the mother's loss of status, which forces her to, you know, go to America on a freighter. It struck me that maybe the filmmakers cut a short but crucial scene that would have clarified the connection. Sadly, that that goes to what you said, Kim, about this could have been a series and they could have fleshed out all these ideas more, but they didn't. That kind of cut in this feature-length film probably was made in order to leave in every second of the endless CGI action scenes, which I found cool, but but really kind of silly. So I'll have more to say about that in a little while.
1: Right, and and I agree. I mean, probably. I imagine, or I like to imagine, that there are reams of footage that include all kinds of story nuggets to love. Because this final cut has more gaps than, you know, pick a punchline, my six-year-old's teeth, all the shopping malls in America, or more gaps than a runway of supermodel thighs during fashion week. Next, we see a lack of clarity in the beginning hook. Even after the messy prologue, the whole opening sequence of events is strange. It makes the entire beginning hook really weird. The order they chose to reveal information really screws up the narrative drive. It seems like they're utilizing mystery, and they create all these moments that allude to something, and then later in the beginning hook, it gets clarified what was really going on. Oh, she used a false name. Oh, it's a fertility clinic. Oh, it's related to her DNA. We have all these questions, but they're not intriguing, they're confusing. And when we do figure it out, it's not a payoff, it's a meh moment. It would have worked better to just put things in order so we know what's going on and we can be concerned rather than left in the dark. And we could use more heralds to help us understand what exactly is going on and why it matters. Next, there's a lack of clarity with the transitions and the settings. This problem with transitions is something I noticed several times. Basically, things would happen, locations would change, an indistinct ship would enter a nondescript planet, and it wouldn't be clear who, what, or where anything was happening. Unlike Puzzle, that got away with cutting transitions because it's a familiar world, Jupiter Ascending is complex with so many different visually strange locations and characters, it's hard to keep track of what the heck is going on. This is an important note for novelists to think about when they're doing chapter breaks or scene breaks Be sure to clearly establish where we are in time and space so the reader can seamlessly continue with the story instead of getting jerked around trying to figure out what just happened. The story would have benefited from carrying the viewer through clearer transitions, which is certainly different in a film versus a novel, or even throwing that superimposed text on the screen to let us know where we are. Which brings me to another problem that I found, lack of clarity in terminology, So many strange terms and phrases were used by people that already knew what they meant but leaves the audience confused. In some scenes, we get Jupiter as our stand-in to ask questions and get things explained, but there are many times we don't. There is one example that really frustrated me, and I ranted to my husband about the entire thing, but I'm going to go ahead and leave that one in the show notes. You're welcome to check that out. Next, we see a lack of clarity at the midpoint. WTF is this scene. There's a really strange scene where we see Jupiter have to navigate through this bureaucracy to gain her title. And it's humorous, but it feels out of place. It may be some kind of satire by the Wachowskis, like Charles Dickens' circumlocution office in Little Dorrit, But to me, it throws off an already very choppy story.
0: Oh, yeah, it it makes no sense at all. And I can't see why it's even in the movie. It, it's it so she can get the tattoo thing. I mean, it takes up like five minutes or something. Almost a throwaway scene. You could cut the whole thing, and nothing in the story changes at all. Not a zilch.
3: Well, I disagree with you slightly there, Jari. It was a silly scene, and they spent way too much money on it and too much time in the film. But it reminded me a lot of similar bureaucracy scenes—the one in Little Dorrit that uh, Kim mentioned. I haven't, c- confess, I haven't actually read Little Dorrit, but I'll take Kim's word for it. But the one that's, a couple that sprang to mind were the one in Zootopia, where sloths are running the DMV, and in Coco, where the land of the dead has its own bureaucracy of skeletons who are rubber stampers. But the scene was the hurdle that Jupiter had to overcome to get to that all-important glowing tattoo and that document that went with it making her the new queen. In the global crisis scene, that bit of bureaucracy is what stands between Belem, the villain, and his goals. And Jupiter's refusal to use the seal on her arm and sign the document seems to be a genuine barrier to him. Whether I accept that a person with Belem's in credible power, would actually care about a lot of bureaucratic regulations, I can believe that only a highly ordered society could result in the kind of you know, massive infrastructure that we see, and a highly ordered society always includes a bureaucracy. And that would also give rise to Belem's belief that life is a pyramid and some people's lives matter more than others. So that bureaucracy scene though I don't disagree that it was a little bit extraneous, did actually support the global crisis and Climax where Jupiter's refusal to sign is seen to actually have some power.
1: You know, that was one thing I kept wondering during that Hero at the Mercy of the Villain scene. Why doesn't Belem just have his dragon man make her seal it, like hold her wrist right to the screen? You know, maybe it doesn't actually work like that, but then again, we don't really know, and so it feels kind of like a plot hole to me. Yeah, I agree with that. And finally there is a lack of clarity with just the number of loose ends that we have here. I have a bulleted list of seven things that feel unfinished and further inconsistent about the story that you can check out in the show notes if you're so inclined. But I want to point out two here, the bees. On Earth, there are these bees, and we learned that they sense royalty. Now this was a really cool part of the story and really visually interesting, but it was strange at the same time, like what is the point of this? Royalty is something that's in our DNA. What does that really mean? It's like on one hand, the story is saying that even a lichenton who is spliced with a wolf and bred for the military has the same value as any human being. And on the other hand, it's saying that her DNA is special and naturally royal and what? Then the other bullet I wanted to point out is that there's this weak connection in the whole premise, the title of Jupiter ascending. It's that she was named after the planet Jupiter by her space-obsessed father, she's born during the astrology sign of Jupiter ascending, then she's a royal who descends to be the owner of the Earth and that processing plant is on the planet Jupiter, it's a lot of coincidence that doesn't add up to anything powerful, or if it is fated, it's not presented well. There's the strange mention of finding love and destiny, etc., but the references are random and they're not threaded with meaning. This brings me all the way around to the big meta why of this story. What is it? And is it meaningful to you? To me, there are so many loose ends left hanging that I can't feel any sense of closure or meta meaning from the story. In my editor six core questions, I listed the controlling idea and theme as life prevails when those with power use it to protect others instead of themselves, which is valid, but I'm just not sure. What about you guys?
0: I mean, I see no meaning in this movie at all. The big metal why that you always talk about, Kim, is absent, I think. It's because they tried to pack so many things into it, and they're all kind of half-baked. The only thing that has a shred of any type of meaning is the weak and poorly constructed love story between Jupiter and Cain, which I think is about class. And even then, it's only at the end where you feel that they actually wanted to love each other. And I know you like this movie the most, so can you kind of help us out to figure out how to understand it all?
3: Well, in my defense, I I will say that I liked this movie better than you guys did. I have very strong mixed feelings about it. All evening yesterday, as we were sort of prepping our sections for this episode, I was freaking out because the more I thought about this film, the better I liked it, even though I am 100% in agreement with everything you guys are saying about how it's not a well-crafted story but I did keep thinking about it, and I'm still thinking about it. And I'm not thinking about it necessarily in the annoyed or frustrated way that everybody else seems to be. Now, Kim, I don't have a straightforward answer to your big meta why question, but I have a feeling that somewhere in this huge mess, there's a complex philosophy that the Wachowskis continue to explore in all of their stories. Back when we analyzed Cloud Atlas, another of their works, Leslie pointed out how important it can be to study a writer's entire body of work. In that case, it was the writer David Mitchell we were talking about. Well, I've seen quite a bit of the Wachowskis' body of work, and ideas about reincarnation and recurrence are in everything they do. It's as if they're struggling with questions of identity, soul, and flesh, which, you know, when you consider that they are two transgender siblings, it's really not that surprising. This film was written around the same time as the founding of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013, and I was very struck by Bolem's villain-defining statement that some lives matter more than others. Themes of extreme power held by the few over the many have been present in the Wachowski's work since The Matrix, where we also, by the way, saw the bodies of the masses of ordinary unimportant, quote-unquote, people being used to literally fuel the goals of a power elite, Now, in this film, I glimpsed ideas, not very well-articulated ones, but I could see them, about individual consciousness and whether it's inherent in brains or transcends physical matter. These are big questions, and that's what the Boczowskis grapple with all the time. Though Jupiter is a perfect DNA match for the queen and therefore materially identical, she isn't the queen. She makes different choices. That's kind of the crisis of the story, is her different choice. Is that because consciousness isn't bound to matter and an identical brain doesn't produce an identical consciousness? Is it an argument about nature versus nurture? After all, Jupiter has been cleaning toilets for a living, and she implies that that hard work is why she's so different from the late queen. Or... Is it because the queen really has been literally reincarnated in Jupiter and her soul has learned something that causes her to make different choices? Whichever view you take, that difference between Jupiter and the queen is what drives Jupiter's crisis and climax choice. Now this philosophical vein of the story that I find fascinating is absolutely, I agree, not well supported by the story structure. It tries and it largely fails because apparently The Wachowskis have spent an expensive career ignoring the likes of Robert McKee and StoryGrid. In fact, probably my biggest complaint about this story is that at its heart, it shouldn't be an action story at all. And if they hadn't been so intent on making it one, there would have been time to build this political and philosophical internal storyline. Now, at best, I think the action plot should have been downplayed and the philosophical elements explored more fully. In many ways, I think it should have aimed to have more in common with Dune than with a Marvel film. Not that Dune was a great film either, but it was a great novel. Instead, it's almost as if this film is masquerading as an action story to please a particular audience. And the audience for those endless action sequences is not the audience for a philosophical story. Neither audience was happy, and pretty much everyone was more or less disappointed. But I personally respect the filmmakers' attempts to reach deeper. They got closer to a coherent vision of this philosophy of theirs a couple of years later with their Netflix series, Sense8. And, you know, maybe one day they'll hit the combination of philosophy and story structure that really carries their message to the masses again, kind of the way The Matrix did. For me, these philosophical underpinnings, as watered down as they were by totally unnecessary zillion-dollar CGI special effects and action scenes and ridiculous plot holes, were enough. Now, the philosophical underpinnings weren't enough to make me actually praise this movie, at least not here in story grid land, because I'm not a total heretic, but enough to make me respect its vision Enjoy the enjoyable bits and forgive or ignore many of its glaring flaws, even while I was also rolling my eyes at them. As a writer myself, I face this conundrum all the time. I lean literary and philosophical, and I'm not happy with my own work unless it contains strong thematic elements. To other writers who feel the same way, I say it's okay to start with the big thematic idea, to invest in it and insist on delivering it. Will our novels succeed? Maybe, maybe not. Remember, though, we really do have a tool that the Wachowskis and their multi-hundred-million-dollar budgets seem to have lacked, and that tool is the story grid. We should be using it to write well-constructed stories that support our noble ideas. But for myself, I'd rather miss a few plot points or punt on an obligatory scene than leave deep meaning out. And I have some respect for this film because it takes the same approach. Jupiter Ascending was a swing and a miss. But I got to say, it was a hell of a swing.
4: Anne, you've really landed on something that helped me clarify my thoughts about how and why this story happened. Why would two experienced filmmakers like the Wachowskis, who know how to tell a great story that is also commercially successful, create a film with so much potential that just doesn't land for most people? I was scratching my head over this one, but now I suspect that this was intended to be a passion project rather than a Hollywood blockbuster. It was for them, not the masses. Of course, writers tell stories not just to explore solutions to the problems we face in the world, but to explore our own personal struggles. So One big takeaway for me is that we need to understand what our goal is for the story. Are we hoping for commercial success, or are we more interested in the message, no matter how it's received? But also, I would say it's really useful to get perspective and receive feedback. As writers, we are so close to our stories that it's hard to be objective about what's working and not. No one knows the story that we want to tell like we do, and for that reason, we lack the distance and perspective to see our blind spots. Now, who the heck am I to tell the Wachowskis, the creators of The Matrix, that they need perspective and feedback? Well, I'm a person who loves action stories on an epic scale, and I particularly love stories that connect our world to a magical or more technologically advanced one. With a premise like this story has, I should have been sucked in from the first moment. I really wanted to love this story, but I just didn't. Now, as I said in our The Wizard of Oz episode, if we want to send a strong message about life or society, our best strategy is to deliver it through a satisfying story. I've no doubt that the Wachowskis could pull this off, and to be fair, I really don't know what requirements or restrictions they had to work with. All we can do at this point is take the story as we find it and learn what we can. So if a client brought this story to me, I'd suggest they start by getting clear on the primary story that they want to tell. Now, I was looking at this through the lens of the global story conventions, and Kim has already included these in the editor's six core questions, but I want to talk about a couple of the conventions that are most relevant to my thinking on this. As I mentioned in the Thor Ragnarok episode, and plenty of others have said before me, the global genre must be strong and clear enough to support the subplots and the complexity of the story world. The global story needs a strong spine, and to build that, it needs the necessary ingredients from which to build it. So let's take a close look at some of the ingredients we have to work with for a global action story. First, we need a clearly defined hero, victim, and villain. Jupiter begins as a victim, and there are three characters, Titus, Kalik, and Balaam, who send their people to either kill or capture Jupiter for their own ends. Later, Jupiter becomes the hero, willing to sacrifice newly acquired wealth that doesn't really mean anything to her, but also her own life and her families. Cain appears heroic throughout, with the exception of some questions about his motive. The people of Earth are the victims, the equivalent of cattle raised for slaughter. Balaam is the big bad villain, but only by a hair. He wants Jupiter dead. Titus is a close second, though he lied about his intentions for Jupiter and Earth.
0: Titus has the better hair, so he really can't be the villain. I think villains have to have bad hair. It's like a rule or something.
4: Hmm. I don't think Sean has mentioned that. Interesting point, Jari. So next I want to look at the hero's object of desire. And that, in an action story, is to stop the villain and save the victim. Jupiter wants to save the people of Earth from being harvested and, of course, wants to save her family, but she also wants a more meaningful life, a telescope, a decent boyfriend, and any of these things could provide adequate motivation for what Jupiter does in the story, but it's kind of a muddle. Cain wants to save Jupiter, but early on he also wants to obtain a pardon for himself and Stinger, and this is where I get into the problems of his motive. Did he know about the harvesting scheme before Titus hired him, or did Titus trick him into believing he actually wanted to stop the harvest? The former seems more likely. Cain doesn't seem naive enough to be taken in by Titus, so that means he would need a compelling reason to change from self-interest to sacrificing himself for Jupiter. But we don't really have a compelling redemption plot on screen, and the moral weight that could have been supplied by a well-developed love story is missing too. Now, a side note, it seems like, more than any factor, the thing that can make a story awful, as opposed to merely meh, is to include muddled internal genres for the main characters. When this happens, the characters' actions don't make sense. And in order for the character actions to make sense, we require clear wants and needs. And that includes both the essential actions, which are the scene goals, and these corresponding to the global objects of desire. You can see how these fundamental story elements are interwoven. And Valerie's going to show us why this is such a problem shortly. The last major convention that I want to talk about with respect to what's going on in this story is the speech and praise of the villain. Now, this can do a lot of things in the story, like establish the power divide. But the thing it really should do is reveal what the villain's point is. When the villain has a point, that is, when they want something very badly and they have a strong reason for it that is deeply embedded within their human needs, the conflict is stronger and the story more engaging. Now, Titus is kind of a throwaway here. His point seems to be hedonism, and he's not unlike the Grandmaster in Thor Ragnarok. He's just as ridiculous, though not quite as funny. Belém wants Jupiter dead so she can't take Earth. Now, Earth, we learn, has good stock and will provide a wide profit margin. But by harvesting it early to prevent Jupiter from taking over, he loses that advantage. So is it out of spite? Does he need the money right away? Or is he just an evil guy? That lack of clarity makes it not very compelling. Now, I recently finished reading Leviathan's Wake by James S.A. Corey, and if you want to see a masterful speech in praise of the villain, check out chapter 41. Even you might be doubting your own convictions while you're listening to that speech. Of course, the final catch-all convention that we talk about are the ones that are related to the subgenre and plot. So which subgenre and plot do we have here? Last season, I said that the nature of the force of antagonism, and sometimes the nature of the victim, determine the subgenre and plot. Belem is our primary villain, and he is intent on destroying Earth, or harvesting it, you know. That would put us in the epic savior territory, and that seems most likely, but we find conventions for other plots and subgenres here as well. I'll say more about this in the show notes. Now, my understanding of what is really going on here was solidified in part by what Anne said, but I want to say a quick word about the opening because of how important it is to nail down the in and the out, as Stephen Pressfield calls it, or the opening image and the closing image. These two scenes should give us the story in a nutshell. The opening scene, of course, here is about Jupiter's origins, who her parents are, what they cared about, and how her father was killed. The closing image is of the joyful relationship between Jupiter and Cain. But is this meant to be a love story? I mean, as we look at it, it looks like a big action story. To me, an opening like the one we have here undermines readers' trust or the trust of the audience. We have an implied contract when we share a story with readers or audience members. If you give me your time and attention, I will not waste your time. Now we spend four minutes on two scenes that ultimately don't matter as Kim mentioned, and they don't impact the main conflict in the story in a substantial way. We're given so much information, in fact, but we're not shown where to file it, how to make sense of it. So when we ask the reader to hold this much in their minds without showing them what it means and what's important, they get lost. Now, some cognitive dissonance in the reader is useful, but some is not. Now, I'll say more about this in the show notes, but my ultimate takeaway is that this is an ambitious film. With lots of potential, but the rich elements were piled on and not woven together, and that makes it unsatisfying for most viewers. So, if you are looking for a great masterwork in the realm of action epic savior with a strong message about society and satisfying internal genres and a love story that works, I highly recommend Leviathan's Wake. I'll share more in the show notes, so be sure to check those out.
0: Everything does feel like it's piled on, you know, everything they could think of, Leslie. So, yeah, I totally agree. And it's hard to have a lot of empathy for characters when the worlds are confusing and you just don't know what to feel. And I know Valerie was going to talk a little bit about that next.
5: Absolutely. One of the things I'm looking at this season is creating empathy. And I know Sean talked a bit about this in the flagship podcast but since I couldn't find that reference, I asked him to talk about it again. And here's what he had to say. In the flagship podcast, in one of the episodes, Tim asked you, how do you create empathy for the protagonist? How do you get the reader to really get involved in the protagonist's story? And if memory serves, you said, oh, you use the hero's journey. Is that right? Am I remembering this correctly?
6: Yeah, that's the macro answer, meaning the big picture way of doing it because everybody moves through life through subjective narrative. So every one of us sees our life in terms of a a beginning, middle, and end story that is unraveling in our mind's eye. So the heroic journey is nothing less than the boiled down abstraction of the narrative journey that we all construct for ourselves. So the closer you can come to adhering to the heroic journey structure, the more the reader will begin to sort of align with that narrative because they're constructing the same narrative journey in their own mind. So that's the macro answer. The micro answer, meaning, well, that's nice and well and good, but how do I do that on the ground, scene to scene? And the way to do that is purely through being perfectly clear about the object of desire. Now, the object of desire, and that can either be the external object of desire, which is what they want, or it could be the internal object of desire, which is what they need. So, for example, if it doesn't come up in the narrative or the exposition, what exactly it is your protagonist wants then your reader is going to be a little bit confused. They'll be trying to figure out what's making this person tick. Whereas if you have the protagonist clearly stating, I'll tell you what I want. I want to become the CEO of this corporation. Then that target goal lodges into the reader's mind in such a way that the reader begins to place themselves in the position of the protagonist and starts to really want that want for the protagonist too. So if you don't clearly delineate what your protagonist wants, you know, sometimes it's as simple as Jack Reacher will say, I want to leave this room, get out of my way, I'm going over there. And that's enough that the reader starts to enter the mind of the fictional character in such a way that they root for them to get what they want. So the, the way to create sympathy or empathy, and this is why the speech and praise of the villain is so important, right? Because basically what the speech and praise of the villain is, it's a very reasonable explanation of what is motivating the source of conflict, the villainy within the story. And so the better you can make that speech in praise of the villain, either coming directly from the villain's mouth or from a third party discussing just how brilliant and powerful that villain is, the more the reader can sort of get excited. They will say to themselves, oh, my gosh, I can't wait until this really amazingly powerful force comes up against the person i'm rooting for to defeat it i wonder how my hero is going to defeat that villain and that creates not only empathy and sympathy but narrative drive so the macro answer is creatively following and innovatively following the heroic journey and the micro is be very clear about the wants and needs from scene to scene of your protagonist.
5: Okay, so we know creating empathy at the macro level requires a story to follow a heroic journey. And I believe this is either the hero's journey or the heroine's journey. Our colleague editor, Julia Blair, has written a terrific post about the heroine's journey, and I'll link to that in the show notes. To create empathy on the micro level, we, as writers need to make sure that we're very clear about our protagonists' objects of desire. So, how does Jupiter Ascending fare? Well, not too well. (laughs) And that's hardly a surprise. As Kim discovered when she did the Editor's Six Core Questions analysis, Jupiter's objects of desire are unclear. Her conscious wants and subconscious needs are not well articulated. There's a whole lot of screen time devoted to Jupiter reclaiming her title. Belém, Titus, Kali, Kane, and Stinger each have their reasons for wanting or not wanting her to achieve that goal. But what does Jupiter want? Because it certainly isn't the crown. Well, we know she wants a telescope. We're told that at around the 20 minute mark. But why? Yes, her father was an astronomer but Jupiter hasn't demonstrated any particular interest in the solar system or in being an astronomer, either professionally or as an amateur. She must want it pretty badly, though, because she's willing to have her eggs harvested to get the money. The audience is being set up here to expect that the telescope is vital. However, it's completely dropped from the story. Now, a quick sidebar here. Most people watch a movie or read a book only once, And because of that, they're tracking the story subconsciously. They're not analyzing it like we do. They're not aware of all the elements of storytelling that we talk about as writers, and nor should they be. That's not their job. That's our job. So when we show that our protagonist wants a thing so badly that she's willing to harvest her eggs for it, the audience subconsciously registers that as an important object of desire. So here, near the end of the beginning hook, the audience is thinking that Jupiter's want is the telescope. All the information they get from this point forward will be measured against the telescope. Is she getting closer to obtaining it or further from obtaining it? The problem, like I said, is that the telescope disappears from the story until the final few scenes. The audience has forgotten all about it and have been busy searching for the new object of desire. So there's no catharsis when the telescope finally arrives. Plus, Jupiter herself shrugs it off because she has a date with (laughs) Cain. It's so bizarre. We also know that she wants to save her family. That's why she goes with Cain initially, but it too is forgotten until the ending payoff when her family's captured. And we know, as Leslie stated, that she wants a relationship with Cain. Okay. So this, this comes out of nowhere. It's not set up. It's not properly developed, but poof, all of a sudden, just about the midpoint is about one hour into the film. She makes a pass at Kane and it's really weird. So my question is this, why doesn't Jupiter want to save the people of earth from being harvested? I mean, she kind of does, but it's not her main want. We can't list that as the main object of desire here. It would be a great object of desire for a sci-fi action hero, and it would include saving her family so she'd get the best of both worlds. An argument, in my opinion, an argument can be made that the way Jupiter handles this issue is proof that for her, life is meaningless, or at the very least, secondary to material or superficial wants. Regardless of what is being stated in the dialogue, Jupiter's actions show that she's willing to sacrifice future generations for her own selfish reasons. She's willing to harvest her eggs, which is future life, for a telescope. She's willing to sign Balem's agreement to protect the current generation of her family, but in doing so, she's sacrificing those who will be born after she's dead. Then she carelessly drops the vial that contains a serum that a hundred of her fellow earthlings have given their lives for. And this is a plot hole here. One of the many ones I couldn't help, but ask myself why they would put something so valuable in a glass container. Surely to God, they can fabricate a non-breakable container. But anyway, moving on. (laughs) Finally, Jupiter doesn't express a true desire to save the people of Earth from being harvested. Yes, she agrees to marry Titus and ultimately refuses to seal the agreement for Belen. But in the end, these acts ring hollow because as Kim also discovered in her analysis, there's still an entire system out there harvesting people. It's really hard to empathize with a person like that. If we're unclear about what Jupiter wants, Do we know what she needs? Given the ending of the story, it seems that what she needs is to be happy with the life she has, to take joy in cleaning toilets for a living. But, I mean, seriously? I mean, there's nothing wrong with cleaning toilets for a living, but don't aspire to more is a pretty weak premise to build a story on. So, clearly, Jupiter Ascending doesn't articulate the objects of desire well enough to generate empathy on the micro level. We're not really sure what she wants, So we can't really root for her to get it. But does Jupiter Ascending follow the heroic journey well enough to generate empathy on the macro level? And well, no, not so much. There is a call to adventure, and that's to go with Cain, but Jupiter doesn't know why the Keepers are trying to kill her or where Cain is going to take her. She, and by extension, the audience, has a vague idea that by going with Cain, she will somehow be able to protect her family. She does refuse the call and then eventually accept it, but it's not clear what exactly she's refusing or accepting or how this will help her get the telescope, which at this point in the story, remember, is what we believe her object of desire to be. Jupiter does talk about wanting to save her family, which is fine, but we're wondering how this connects to the telescope. It's kind of like a Chekhov's gun situation. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to go through each stage of the hero's journey here, but there's a couple of key points that I want to draw your attention to. Jupiter's our protagonist, yet throughout the middle build, she doesn't really do much. She's more of a damsel in distress than a hero. Jack the Giant Slayer and Dracula have the same problem, which is an ineffective hero that fails to carry the middle build. In the hero's journey, the hero faces several challenges, each one bigger than the one before. We can kind of see the challenges if, as Anne likes to say, we squint. But where I think Jupiter Ascending really goes off the rails is with the internal development of the character. And that is what the heroic journey is all about. The protagonist has to approach the inner cave and go through the central ordeal, and all that represents, so that her true gift can be expressed and she can be reborn as a new and better version of herself. Then and only then can she claim her reward, that is, her object of desire, and return home to a better life than she had before. Now, this better life doesn't have to be on the material level. In fact, if it were merely material improvement, the story wouldn't really be all that satisfying. Here, Jupiter returns home to a life of cleaning toilets, but now seems content with her lot in life. She no longer hates her life. She embraces it. There's so much confusion in this film that we have no idea how she came to this enlightened perspective. What gift has she expressed? What has she been in pursuit of that she has now earned? Yes, as I said, she finally gets her telescope, but she hasn't earned it. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. And it's no longer her main object of desire, being with Cain is. And that storyline wasn't introduced until halfway through the film. It's all very confusing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it right on the head. I'm looking at Love Story, and lots of action stories have love subplots to kind of break up the action. They were also used in action stories to make the f- characters feel more real and more empathetic so you can relate to them. As Valerie mentioned, the love plot shows up late. This scene sums up the mess nicely.
2: We all do things we can't explain. I said it was in my genes. Uh, defect of my genome engineering. could explain a lot of things about me. Like the fact that I have an uncanny ability to fall for men that don't fall for me. It's like my internal compass points straight at Mr. Wrong. Maybe it's my genes. Maybe I have defective engineering too. And if that's the case, is there any way to fix it? You are royalty now. I'm a splice. You don't understand what that means. But I have more in common with a dog than I have with you. I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. I should go, Your
0: Majesty. Most of the obligatory scenes at conventions are present. But this love subplot lacks believability that the characters really love each other. I think that can be traced back to Jupiter and her utter lack of interest in finding love. Again, it's not set up at all. Her dialogue feels forced, and it's almost an afterthought. The sense I get is that the love between Jupiter and Cain was added, you know, kind of later on, or just thrown in to make up for the lack of empathy for all of these characters. At least I feel that for Jupiter. I will say that I do love the family scenes where you do feel that something about the position that this family's in, especially the cousin, was a massive screw up that Jupiter does try to help. So you do feel a little empathy for him. I feel they nailed the immigrant family dinner scene, which is usually a great way to set up a love interest or pressure to find love or, you know, love of family so that you can do something to help the family get along. The cautionary tale, I think, uh, for writers that I would take away from Jupiter Ascending is that if you're going to put a love subplot into an action story, make it believable. Add some setup scenes where the two potential lovers are actually yearning for love. Make the love subplot scenes tender, cute, and meaningful, and not silly, cheesy, and forced like in this one. So, Kim, do you have any final thoughts on Jupiter Ascending?
1: I first have to say I don't know how you can find the cousin empathetic at all. He was a total douchebag, so... I don't know. We'll have to disagree on that one. Well, I,
0: I don't, he's not a total D-bag. I just think that he that's
5: is. the only, 100%. sorry,
3: yeah, total yeah. douchebag, sorry, weighing in yes, here. Yes,
5: he is, Jari. <laughs> he wants her to harvest her eggs so he can buy a television.
1: Nope.
0: All right. Okay. Overruled. <laughs>
1: okay. <clears throat> okay. Here we go. So final thoughts. First of all, I am so grateful for my fellow roundtables for going on this crazy journey and studying this story with me. And I love everything Anne said about only wanting to write stories with deep thematic meaning. And I am personally emboldened by the idea that it's better to swing for the fence and strike out than take a walk to first base. All that said, here is the recommended treatment plan and prescription for revisions based on what everyone has said. Number one, cut the prologue and the telescope payoff at the end. It just, it's not helpful. It's detracting. Number two, either make it a fully fleshed out series or cut about half the darlings to make it a single comprehensible story. Number three, do what Valerie said and give the hero a clear object of desire that's consistent up to the global crisis when it should shift the internal objects of desire. And number four, Decide whether you're telling a genuine action story or a society political story with strong action elements, and then write that story.
5: Great suggestions, Kim. And I'm not just saying that because you suggested doing what I said. (laughs) Okay, to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. And this week's question comes to us from Heather, who says, I'm writing a thriller story, but it's feeling flat. My villain feels cliche and not evil enough. How can I craft a more compelling villain? Do you recommend brainstorming first before you flesh out your protagonist or after? Well, this is an excellent question, and the answer is more complex than you might actually think. The force of antagonism is key in all stories, not just thrillers, and it's an area newer writers don't pay enough enough attention to that's why we run into so much trouble in the middle build. Remember the middle build belongs to the villain. The force of antagonism is what's driving the narrative. So without a compelling villain that is constantly inciting the protagonist to act, your story will wander and lose steam. So how do you create a compelling villain? Steve Pressfield has a whole series of articles over on his blog at stephenpressfield.com and I've got a Fundamental Fridays post that I'll link to in the show notes. Now, to answer this question fully, honestly, I'd need to write a book. And yes, I've got that on my list of things to do, unless uh, Stephen Pressfield plans to do it first. (laughs) But for now, here's one idea to get you started. It's this. The villain is the hero of his own story. He is not a two-dimensional character, unless of course we're talking about the monster in a horror story. A truly compelling villain wants what he wants for a reason. And there's gotta be some merit in it. He's got to have a valid point. Now here's the rub. You, as the writer, have got to be able to agree with your villain. It's not simply that the villain thinks he's right, you have to think he's right, too. You have to agree with his point of view, at least to a certain extent, otherwise you've created a mustache twirler. I recommend you pick out some truly memorable and terrifying villains and study them. What do they want and why do they want it? If you look at the situation through their eyes, can you see their point of view? Okay, on to the second part of your question, whether you brainstorm your villain before you have a protagonist or after is entirely up to you. That's about your process as a writer. It can work equally well either way and might actually shift from project to project. For example, in the book I'm working on now, the villain is the first character I had. But in the book before that, I had the protagonist first.
0: Alrighty, I hope that helps. Thanks, Valerie. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thanks, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Jupiter Ascending. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp on how to diagnose and treat a story that doesn't work. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, Links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell all your writing friends about us. Join us next time as Anne compares Barry Jenkins' 2018 film If Beale Street Could Talk with the James Baldwin novel it's based on. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Okay, circumlocution. Okay, just one second. Circumlocution. Circumlocution. Say it one more time for me. Circumlocution. Thank you. Circumul. Oh, for fuck's sake.